This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by LifeWay's Christian Standard Bible. It's a translation that presents the truth of God's Word with accuracy and clarity. The CSB equips readers for lifelong discipleship. Be sure to check out all the designs at csbible.com. Today's conversation is part of our series, Finding Common Ground. And in each episode, we've been looking at different aspects of natural revelation and how the world around us is giving us that common ground that we seek and desperately need with our fellow humans. And so our first conversation was about our shared fate and our human limits. And our previous discussion was a lively one. It was with James Beatler and Richard Gibson. They were sharing their expertise on shared language. And Hannah, that was such a fun episode to have two guests with us in the house. We had all kinds of good conversation in that one. I so enjoyed uh, last episode, just listening to the enthusiasm and the joy um, that they both had for their topic. I I have to be honest, I was sitting here kind of muffling giggles just because they had so (laughs) much joy. And it's so rare to find people who are able to work within their field. And just it really their joy is infectious. And so that was a delight to me. I mean, the conversation was great, too. Um, But I had such joy just watching them have joy. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. And I appreciated all of the, the the layers of conversation that we had about words and meaning and language and how people communicate with each other. I thought all of that was just so interesting and fascinating about how we go about the process of communicating with each other. And and how many hurdles there are. Oh, um, yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time unpacking what stops us from communicating well. And, and to me, it was like making the case once again for why we need these shared categories, these finding the things that at the base level we all share as human beings. Because if we don't have those, all we have are the misunderstandings. All we have mm-hmm. are the divisions. So I really appreciated if only maybe in negative, it really underscored why we even have to pursue common categories. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we touched on in that conversation was this idea of what are the things that we can all agree on in terms of there are base elements that we can all say these things we share in terms of 
concepts or terms. And coming back to these basic building blocks will help us to at least have the sense of we're not completely separated from our fellow humans. Like we we can find things that are common in our everyday human experience and living that we do have shared categories and there are things we can agree on and we can start there to have these better conversations. Absolutely. And today, as we continue to think along those lines, I want to circle back to what I said at the beginning about just kind of being an observer on the level of joy and um, I guess flourishing, for a lack mm. of a better word, that mm-hmm. we we saw in the conversation we had last week where you had um, two men who had given their lives to studying a certain topic and that had become their calling and vocation. And then they they really just were able to shine in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that we all long for. That ability to have something, to have a work, to have a calling that we do well, and we're able to just step into and I wouldn't say run free or run mm-hmm. wild, but just really um, do our best in that space. That's the thing. When you see someone who it, it, it's like they're operating in their their passion zone or their giftedness or whatever you want to call it, it is something that draws you to them because you you sense that there's something very alive and energizing in them that's motivating them to do their work. And so that draws you to the person once you know what is the thing that makes them get so excited about their work and their life. What is the thing that they are so passionate about? Those are the things that connect us so well with one another, but you have to actually know, like you you have to dig into these ideas and, and get to know the person and, and fig- figure out what is it that gets you that excited and passionate about what you do with your life. And so that example from them is the perfect setup for what we're going to talk about here today. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you said something um, I don't know if you intended to, but but just that there's this energy and this vitality that draws us to people. And I think what we're really seeing um, when we see someone working within their, um, you know, their sweet spot is yeah. we see someone coming alive. Yep. What we're seeing is that life energy, their humanity coming forward. They're not just a cog in the wheel. They're not just, um, you know, pushing buttons or robotic kinds of ways of working. It it is a fully embodied, deep-seated human expression. And it makes me think um, even how in the scripture, our work and our calling and our vocation is so deeply tied to our humanity, mm-hmm. to, to our sense of self in the world. And, and I wonder if that kind of movement toward calling, toward work, toward vocation is a way to see other people's humanity, to not just see them as features of this larger machine, but to, to really see them come alive gives us eye, eyes to see their work, to see them in all of their full humanity. I I like what you're saying there about seeing people in that way. Um, We're so tempted with 
the way things are and the way we are to dehumanize, to to strip people of their humanity and just see them as, let's say, the thing that we don't agree with or a stance that we find distasteful. And so it's so easy to just put that veneer on someone when really they are a full human in their being and and how they're expressing themselves in their work. And if we can see people like that as all part of this, um, I don't know, almost like the community, the ecosystem, we're all working together in flourishing, doing these things that bring life and, and contribute to the whole. I feel like that's such a healthier um, perspective to have for people because then we can relate better to them day to day and have that shared connection. Again, it'll help us to communicate better with others. Yes. And I think, you know, we also have to acknowledge that this is a rare thing when we meet someone living this way or yeah. when we recognize it or when we recognize it in ourselves. It feels like something unusual. Mm-hmm. And it catches our attention. And I think we have to acknowledge the ways in which particularly uh, Western culture, American culture in particular, has not related to work that way, has not related to vocation and calling as a fulfillment of the human being, but has created structures and a larger culture that has reduced the human beings work to this commodity, mm-hmm. right? So the workforce is just mm-hmm. one more natural resource that we use within the marketplace. And I'm not saying that we can't think of it in terms like that, but we have a history of dehumanizing work, separating it from the individual who is doing the work. Um, and something as basic as our history of slavery tells us that, mm-hmm. that We had human beings gifted and skilled, having their work taken from them and separated from them. And I think, of course, you're not going to see them as human. Mm -hmm. Like the question comes, can you steal people's work, whether it's slavery or, you know, underpaying people for their work or whatever um, kind of vocational uh failures that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Is it because we first didn't see people as human and we thought we could take their work? Or is it because we stole their work and then that taught us not to see them as fully human? And and I think it's that kind of cyclical sense that it's self-reinforcing that there is something fundamental in our ability to work well, to desire to work well, um, that goes back to that core humanity that we talked about in our episode about soil from dust Mm -hmm. to dust. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's fascinating when I think about the metaphors that the scripture uses even to discuss um, our work. The first human beings made from the soil are then turned around and set in a garden. Mm, To work that soil. Yeah. To work the soil from which they were taken. So there is this inextricable link between our vocation and our, and our fulfillment as human beings and as image bearers. Well, what's interesting there, it's like that link is there. It was embedded and part of God's design. And yet so often I feel like those two things are detached in our everyday life because we 
we may want flourishing, but then we're also kind of set up with these definitions of what does it mean to be successful. I mean, the US, we've got this whole idea of the life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And then we've got our history that has really muddied that whole thing. And so in some ways, I feel like we've we're on this track of where we're working and working and working to try to achieve something, some level of success that in a in a affluence that we've defined here in the United States. But it's almost like we're going to achieve something and then we'll have meaning. Whereas right. really, they, they're supposed to go together. Like our work is giving us meaning. And those two things together create flourishing. It's not the work is flourishing or the meaning is flourishing. It's that they're together creating flourishing, but somehow we've detached them. And I feel like that can set us up on um, kind of like a the rat race, you know, the, the, the hamster wheel where we're just running, 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 and we're waiting to have the flourishing after that instead of as part of the process. Absolutely. And, and I think it's easy enough for us to step back and look at the ways in which our culture is broken or our own experience of work and vocation is broken because it it really does affect us. It's painful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we see in Genesis 3 the curse of the ground and the curse of the man and woman's work. And, and I think we don't have to convince each other that what we're doing is probably not the best way to go about it. <laughs> right. But I don't know that we always have the right template to begin with. Like, I don't Mm. think we always get back to first principles. Mm -hmm. Instead of just looking at society saying, well, this is wrong. We shouldn't do it this way. And this is where it's broken. While that is helpful, it doesn't actually build or push us toward the right or good way of flourishing. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. So it can tell us, stop doing this. But it can't tell us what should we be doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where, for me personally, I like to try to dig into that initial metaphor of, okay, so Adam was taken from the ground. He was placed into the garden to tend and keep the garden. And it's this imagery. It's a, it's a natural world imagery of cultivation. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're all gardeners, doesn't mean that mm, we're all farmers. Right. It's Which not... is good because I'm not good at that. <laughs> yeah. So so what are the embedded concepts? Yes. What are the things that happen in cultivation that can transfer to whatever vocation you're called to? And in a little bit, we're going to have a chance to talk with a friend of mine, Sarah Paybody, who's actually, she does work in cultivation. She's a, a flower farmer. But I think there's something to tease out here. Mm -hmm. If we believe that the world around us is created in a way that holds common truth, common reality, what does the idea of cultivation mean for that type of work, that type of vocation, that type of calling that we all long for? Mm -hmm. I I like this... um connectedness that we can get from um, knowing that we are called to cultivate and what that looks like is going to be different for each one of us based on all kinds of things, all the factors that make us unique individuals. But right in that um, that space, that's where we can say, oh, we are all doing 
what we can to find flourishing, to find meaning, to to work at something and create something that's lasting and contributes to society. And so if we can start there and know that this is what we are all doing in a wide array of actions and activities, then we can find that shared space where we're like, oh, okay, we are all doing this together. It's going to look different for each one of us, but we are together in this. Right. So if we have that baseline, that base imagery of we're all cultivating, we're Mm -hmm. all trying to bring something forth from our work. We're all kind of breaking up the ground. We're putting seeds in. Um, we're, We're tending and trying to strip away the things that would keep it from growing well. We're providing the resources it needs, whether it's water or fertilizer. And then we're working in partnership with other people to cultivate this. Mm -hmm. And we're also waiting on God and all of the elements around this plant that we're trying to cultivate that we have no control over, all of the the weather elements and, the, you know, the how much sunlight, temperature, rain, whatever would come, they, they kind of act as a representative of all the things that are outside of our work mm-hmm. that uh, we can't control. And, and all of a sudden, I don't have to be a nurse or a um, engineer to be able to talk to my fellow human and say, oh, I understand what you're talking about. I understand what it means to work really, really, really hard and be frustrated that something outside of your control came along and destroyed the work you were doing. Or I understand what it means to work in a way that you're starting out with something, but you're not sure how it's going to go. But you've got that initial excitement. You've put the seed in the ground and you have all these hopes and dreams for what's to come. That... um that process, the the patterns of tending and keeping and cultivating and planting and then waiting, that that process of tending the work, I think if we can grab onto that and and like you said, use that almost like a template and a connector with people, it's good not only just to build relationship, but I think it's helpful then to connect people that would seemingly on the surface have nothing in common or or for ways that we don't know about somebody else's passions or interests or vocation we can see these similarities and and find ways to ask better questions like how does your work require more patience and what are the mysteries where you're just waiting to see what will unfold those are true in every vocation and every um, professional pursuit but do we ask those kinds of questions or do we just feel like, oh, I don't understand what it is that you do day to day? And so I think that these things give us um, that sense of we are doing different activities, but we can still relate to each other. But you just have to look at the the grid, look at the framework a little bit more so than the actual activities. And, you know, I, I've experienced this, but when someone asks me about my work, I feel seen. I feel cared for. Mm, Yes. I feel like it's not just how are you doing or how are your relationships. It's what are you investing your life 
in to create and cultivate. And I think what you're suggesting, and I love it, is that knowing these categories would give us the questions to ask, to be curious, Mm -hmm. to be interested, and to show love to our fellow human beings by just asking them about their work. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Well, I'm here with my friend Sarah Paybody, who is the co-founder and, I guess, manager, farmer at Triple Rent Farms um, out in the northwest corner of the United States, up in Washington, very close to the Canadian border. Um, And Sarah, I'm so glad you could come and chat with me for a few minutes today. Could you tell listeners what you do up there? What does your life look like? Well, sure. Hello, Hannah. I am happy to tell you that. So, I do live on a little piece of land up here in Northwest Washington with my husband and my children, and we have a farm that we've named Triple Wren Farms. So we started it in about, in in early 2012. I, I started it really as an experiment by myself, but within a year and a half, Steve, my husband, came home from his job and we started farming cut flowers together. And we did that for about five years, and then we started adding nursery products like roots of flowers or potted flowers or seeds. We added nursery products into our farm, and now that's our primary business. So for the last four or five years, we've been doing um, nursery products and still about 20% of cut flowers. But we work by putting our hands in the dirt. We go outside and work hard every day. We really, we say we share beauty because the bottom line is that we want to help gardeners all over the United States enjoy beautiful blooms like we have here at the farm. So that's what I really want to hear about. How did you settle on flowers? Was there something in that that just called you or how did this happen for you? It's funny. I I would say that 10 years ago, I considered myself a fairly balanced consumer, but I had never once thought about who grew flowers that we used, or I would go to the grocery store and see displays of flowers. And I never once considered where they came from, never crossed my mind. And then one day when my children were very young, I was taking them to the public library for a reading time with the librarian. And the library had this beautiful display of small business particularly ag business books, agricultural business books. And right at the top was this book called The Flower Farmer. And I was just struck by, oh, huh, 
I guess there are farmers who grow flowers. And I checked out the book. And when I had a few quiet minutes, I started reading and I just fell in love with the idea of growing flowers as a business. And I began to learn that, of course, as most business people know, I think that the floriculture world is a billion dollar, billions of dollars of business every year. And turns out we here in the Pacific Northwest, we're transplants from the deep South, but we've moved out here for a job for my husband, Steve. And we are, we're just in the heart of a revitalization of American flower farming. They call it the slow flowers movement right here. So we didn't realize it, but we were surrounded by people who were passionate about growing flowers. And really we just sort of fell into it. We were in a place where we were trying to decide if we should stay in the Pacific Northwest or move back to the Southeast or just really trying to discern what God's plan was for our family. And right at the moment of decision, someone we had just met once or twice, like barely even knew, asked us if we would be willing to sort of go on an adventure and babysit their apple orchard for a couple of years, live in their home and manage their property. And they had about 10 acres of apples that they you picked. Somehow we thought this would be a great idea, despite the fact that we lacked farming experience. And this person was willing to give us some training over about a week's period and then be available via phone while they went on their own adventure. And we said, yes. And we moved to the farm. And while we were there, they said, you can farm in this fallow land we have. And anything you want to grow, you can grow. I don't think they really were thinking we would farm there. I think they were thinking we would just grow things like a garden or something. It was right about the same time that God brought that book into my world. And so I uh, I began growing things. So we fell into it. We did not plan this. It was not, I did not major in horticulture or in business. This was not something that we envisioned as our life at all. I love that. I love that it was both uh, surprising to you that you're as much watching it play out, you know, yeah, <laughs> as anyone else. True. But also that there was an element of desire too. There was an yeah. element of drawing and longing and kind of beauty captivating you at the front um, yeah. and pulling you towards something. But but I hear you say that this wasn't something that you studied for. So how how did that kind of shift? Because I think a lot of folks over the last year or two are in this kind of vocational moment where what they thought they would be doing, mm-hmm. they're not doing. Um, oh, yeah. The effects of, um, you know, COVID and all of just the social unrest has really put a lot of people in this moment of looking at their lives and saying, it's going to look dramatically different than what I anticipated. So how did you go through that process? Like what kinds of things did you need to get you through that kind of shift? It is such an interesting thing to think about because you're right. You're sort of observing it as it's happening to yourself. You don't really realize that it's happening until it is happened or maybe till it has happened. I wasn't searching for a change in my vocation at all. And I think because we quite literally fell into it, we were surprised that we were changing vocations. And then we were surprised to discover how much joy we found in having our hands in the earth and in taking something really wild and cultivating it into something orderly um, and just watching seeds germinate. Just the small details of it were 
so delightful to our hearts and our souls that within a few months, Steve was saying things to me like, I would be so happy to do this for the rest of my life. Or I don't ever want to go on vacation. I love doing what we do so much. Um, Silly, you know, things that we look back on now. And although I don't think that's changed, he loves what he does. He doesn't want to go on vacation. (laughs) But there's just so much imagery that we've taken from our years of um, just growing up, thankfully having God's word massaged into our hearts, that once we started farming and living in a way that meant we were practically experiencing those metaphors from God's word, it was so exciting. And 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 there is there has been a tension here for me because most of my life I felt like the highest calling vocationally would be if for anyone, but specifically for me, if I spent my life sharing God's specific revelation, so his word with other people. I had this view partly, I think, because of teaching I received during my upbringing, but also my own narrow observations of life. Like I was like, this is the ultimate goal of of my work. And I think too, as a I'm more of a type A, Enneagram 3, achiever. I wanted to spend my life doing what I perceived as the best or the highest calling. But when I married Steve, he and I both thought we would spend our lives doing full-time, overtly teaching ministry. But the truth is that is not what God is calling us to do right now. So it turns out he has, he has us teaching with our hands more than with our words right now. Well, Hannah, I really enjoyed hearing about Sarah's work and her perspective on it, too. Um, It sounds like something that we could learn from, not only because she is tending the ground, but there are those same um, patterns and uh, processes of vocation that we've talked about here already that she provided such good insight on. Yes, and I love how, um, you know, it was so unexpected for her. It was such a different route than she anticipated taking. And I know um, maybe listeners are hearing this conversation and it sounds completely idealistic and it's kind of giving (laughs) this false hope in a world that you don't get to do what you want. And I think, you know, absolutely, we all have these limits in a broken world, but I hope it gives folks maybe a little space to dream, Mm -hmm. um, a little space to think about what God might be leading them into Um, that might look different than they would have expected or anticipated. Definitely. Well, I'll make sure to get all of Sarah's um, social media info into the show notes so everyone can go find her and see what she's up to. But that'll do it for this episode of Persuasion. Be sure to come back next week for the next installment of Finding Common Ground series. And as always, we would love to hear what you're thinking after you listen to us talk. You can always find us um, on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC. You can find us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum talking about all kinds of things there. And 
And again, if you're not a member, you can become a member for just $5 a month. And that money all goes to support the work of Christ and Pop Culture to support the writers, um, the other podcasts, and um, the online magazine. And we want to say thanks again to LifeWay's Christian Standard Bible for supporting this particular conversation. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen and is part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Find all those shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for them at iTunes. And thanks to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.